Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. It's the end of another year and what a year it's been, both on track where Formula One crowned a new world champion in Max Verstappen and on this podcast where once more we delighted in bringing you some wonderful conversations about the sport we love. As has become a Christmas tradition, we thought we'd play you some clips from the season just gone. They're not highlights because I love speaking to all of the guests. Think of these more as moments that left me open-mouthed or made me laugh or were just really interesting. So grab a mince pie and a drink and let's do some reminiscing together about Beyond the Grid 2021. To decide the championship in 2021. Down the inside, Hamilton sees him coming. It's a late lunch by Verstappen, who takes the lead of the race. Verstappen now snatches the championship trophy from Lewis Hamilton. They have shared a brilliant championship battle, but the championship can only be won by one, and it's going Dutch in 2021. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion. Verstappen, you are the world champion, the world champion. Max, we are so proud of you. Oh my God, guys. I love you so much. You have driven like a champion all year. You deserve that. We needed a bit of luck. You got it. You made it happen. And we love you. We absolutely love you. First up, I thought it only right that we give a nod to the newly crowned world champion. And for that, I chatted to Red Bull boss Christian Horner back in June about how his star driver has evolved over the last five years. I think the maturity, the experience that he has now, he's got his feet on the, on the ground. He's just a, a no bullshit racer. That's all he cares about. That's all he wants to do. And... Uh, you know when you put him in the car, he's going to give you 110%. That's what makes him, I think, so exciting to watch that you just know Imola this year, starting P3 on the grid, he's not going to be there at the first corner. It's lights out and away we go. Verstappen gets an excellent reaction. Verstappen and Hamilton wheel-to-wheel going into the Tamburillo chicane. Hamilton is forced wide and he's lost a little bit of bodywork as well. Verstappen leads the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix. Um, uh, that that kind of thing. You just you just know you're going to get 110 percent from him. Is he better able to play the percentage game now? Yeah, I think so. I think he, but with that level of maturity, I think he's demonstrated that. You know, certainly in in, in some of the races this year. When I look back to 2016 and that Barcelona Grand Prix, he was so young. Yeah. What were you thinking? Oh, no, we all knew he was good. We were thinking, how the hell did he do that? Because we thought we'd put Daniel on the better strategy. Yes. And Max managed to convert a one-stop or whatever yes. it was at the time into a, into a win. I was thinking, how did he make the tyres last? I mean, did he just do that? And I remember it was the most surreal thing. He'd never even sat in the car before yeah. the weekend. You know, it just chucked him straight in and he, he, boom, first victory. It was mental, wasn't it? Fairy tale stuff. Almost as mental, you could say, as the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in which Max clinched the world title. He's only 24 and it'll be fascinating to see how good he can become in the coming years. As good as Max was in 2021, his car, the RB16, and his team were fantastic too. 
Which takes me back to a conversation I had with Sergio Perez in March about the design genius Adrian Newey and the guys and girls in Milton Keynes who were his new workmates. He's obviously a very clever guy, but he's also a, a racing driver. You know, he's like, when you talk to him, you're feeling that you are speaking to a racing driver that uh, has just driven the car. And, and it's like, uh, in, a, in a way, talking to Max, you know, because he, he knows what's going on. He knows what's happening with the car. He knows what tools you can use. And, and uh, that's pretty impressive, to be honest, to, from Adrian, what I found from him, you know. Uh, and the speed to do things is also extremely impressive. Everyone talks about his ferocious competitiveness, you know, Drivers are competitive, that's a given, right? But Adrian is just like you. Like, I mean, does that come across yeah, in him yeah, as yeah. well? It's, it's just what I said, you know, that he's such a competitive guy, uh, such a race, a pure, he's a pure racer, a uh, racing driver, you know, he's, he really wants to, to make uh, this work. And he's been, I mean, obviously he's an aerodynamic genius, but, uh, and he's designed racing cars, but he's also been a race engineer as well. So he sort of, there's not a... There's not an area of it that he doesn't understand. Exactly. You know, I think that he has been through so much in his career, through different phases. He also drives cars, you know. Uh, Have you well, seen his car collection, by the way? He's got an amazing yeah, car Yeah, he does. Yeah. He does. I haven't seen it. Uh, I look forward to that. But I just heard from Christian that he is also a racing driver, you know. Uh, once I took him to Silverstone to, to test, and he's 100% fearless, you know. Uh, it was a bit damp in, in, into, I think it was cops. And he try he tr definitely tried to go through it flat you know and the car was like moving around and he's just a very confident uh, race driver yeah. <laughs> <laughs> complete fearlessness is probably not a great thing is it in a yeah. racing driver you need a little bit of <laughs> self-preservation yeah. but well he must uh, trust a lot his driving capacities true that is true now look this is your first team move in seven years does it feel slightly odd to be learning a new environment, or are you quite invigorated by it, that? It feels very, it definitely feels weird, you know, because you've been for seven years with the same people working with, and, and it is a, a, a change, but a change that I, I, I've enjoyed a lot. You know, I've come to a great team. The team has welcomed me massively, and um, yeah, it's been very enjoyable uh, experience to work with uh, this group of people. Checo's had a very promising first season with the team, with that win in Baku and fourth place in the Drivers' Championship. And might I suggest, Checo, that you take some time over the winter to check out Adrian's car collection. What made 2021 such a thrilling season was the rivalry between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton and also Red Bull and Mercedes, who went on to take a record-breaking eighth consecutive Constructors' title. I really enjoyed getting the Brackley boys together in April. The Brackley boys being four of the longest serving engineers at Mercedes, Ron Meadows, Andrew Shovlin, Simon Cole and James Valls. And they know only too well what makes Lewis Hamilton so special. Natural talent. He's, a, he's got an incredible work ethic as well, but he's, he is the whole package. He can't find any weakness in, in Lewis. Over time, he's just got stronger. Where's he got stronger? It's not one area, it's the fact that every time he doesn't win a race, he goes and works out why he didn't win it and why the next time that happens, he'll win, win it instead of whoever else did. And, it, and it's this kind of relentless 
understanding and improving process that he goes through that I think must be quite exhausting because it never really stops. But as Ron said, he just keeps getting better and better and he's obviously broken all records, but to see a driver who's achieved so much still working for every, you know, every win like it's their first, which, you know, which is really what he does... But it, you can see why, why he is where he is. And it is down to hard work, dedication, and just this relentless urge to keep winning. James, is he a strategist's dream in that whatever you concoct in the middle of a race, you know he can deliver you whatever mean, wh- you need? Whatever mistakes James makes, yeah, it, Lewis is mostly, able to fix them. I mean, for, for clarity. That's how I read that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, I need 18 qualifying laps from you now. You know he's just going to deliver. Um, where his strengths lie, so shoves him up brilliantly. He's, he never gives up, ever. He, you don't see his head drop in the race. He doesn't think, I'm 12th, I'm going to give up now. He just wants to know what's ahead of him, how to keep fighting. In fact, often we're the ones that have to tell him, you need to just accept where you are now because what's in front of you is just not achievable anymore. And that, that strength is what allows you, even when you're on the back foot, to push forward and fight his way through. There are so many races that all of us have been privileged to have with him where he's not the leading car at the two and he's the one fighting tooth and nail at the back and you know he'll give everything to you he's not going to back off he's not going to give down he, he may be frustrated and upset that you've made a mistake and put him into a situation that's difficult but he delivers on it and that's what he's done in all the time that we've been with him and is lewis an inspirational character you say james that you've got better over the years is it because the sort of the ethos to improve permeates down from the top from lewis from so first of all we are definitely incredibly privileged to have a leadership that acts in the same way as they talk so in other words there is no blame culture and there's a culture of accepting that you need all those around you and that permeates from from toto absolutely within the team and the environment and we are led by in all the time that i've been in the sport the best tp that you could imagine really in terms of lewis and what he brings to the party they're all different. Every single driver and what they've bought is different. And I don't think it's one individual. I think it's how they form together in the culture we've created here that's why we are who we are today and how we work together. So what I mean by that is, is one individual isn't strong enough to completely change the dynamics of thousands of people that are building this car. Did Lewis fit into the culture here immediately or has he had to adapt? Have you seen him adapt? Oh, he, he's definitely, I'll speak on my behalf only because I, I can't talk on behalf of others, but he's a very different character to the character that joined us. When he joined us, he was a mercenary. He was here for himself to win races. That desire to win hasn't disappeared, but what he's realized is you do it with a team and as a part of a team, and you become the greatest sportsman that exists as a result of it. One individual can't do it by himself. Shav, how have you seen him change? As James said, I think early on, it, you know, he, he was this sort of relentless uh, desire to win every race would manifest itself in his driving and he would just be pushing and pushing and, and couldn't stop. And, and I think now he's just becoming a much more calculating driver. He's from you know the first lap of the first race, he's thinking about championships, he's thinking about looking after the car and the tyres a lot more. And as much as... He, I mean, he hasn't got any better at losing races because that's just in his nature. Certainly his approach to the weekend and his thinking in the car and everything is just becoming really calculated and clean and clinical to the point where, you know, if someone asks you about Lewis making mistakes, you kind of, 
you're thinking back and you're going you know you're going back seasons often to try and recall the instances where it happens he's just getting you know well, he, his target is perfection and that's a difficult target to pick but that's that's what he's trying to achieve the relentlessness of lewis hamilton it'll be fascinating to see how lewis bounces back from the disappointment of abu dhabi and you sense from listening to the brackley boys that he'll come back stronger don't you charles leclerc was on the show back in july And we spoke at length about his time at Ferrari, those wins in 2019, all of it juxtaposed against the loss of his great friend Antoine Hubert in a Formula 2 race at Spa the same year. When did you mourn the loss of your friend? Because you can't have had time with that weekend and then, of course, Monza the following weekend. Did it take a while to sort of hit home? I think the week after was the... um the funerals and this kind of made me realize the whole thing because once you are in the heat of the moment with the racing also obviously you realize that you've lost a friend but on the other hand you I was trying at my best to try and think about my race to try and because I still was starting the Sunday in pole position for race and uh, I still had to go and try to win it so I, I had to be on it so it was very very difficult the preparation until the Sunday and try to stay to stay focused but I will say at the funeral then I I kind of accepted uh, the the loss and and try to um, not to forget it I hate to say forget it but to try and and keep it in my mind but in a, in a more positive way how did his death and of course Jules Bianchi before him change your attitude to the sport it never really changed for me how come? I don't know. I can't explain. Racing is my passion. It's my life. It's always been my life. I'm, I'm doing that since I, am, uh, since I am three and a half years old. So since I'm very, very young. I probably didn't know when I was three and a half years old that it was a dentary sport. I probably realized it a little bit later. But I knew it at one point that it was a dentary sport, that things could happen, bad things could happen. Obviously, speaking about Jules, I've realized it with the incident of Jules. But for me, it was, I mean, every time I'm putting my helmet, I have a smile on no other things in life can bring me such a smile. For me, the relationship with the sport is this, is I'm happy whenever I put a helmet. I know that there's danger, but on the other hand, it's what makes me happy. So there are, there are no questions for me. Let's talk Monza. Full house, mad Tifosi cheering you on. Pressure race. Lewis Hamilton right <laughs> on your gearbox for lap after lap. Yeah. Special. This race was incredible. I mean, the amount of pressure there was not only the race day, but during the whole week. We are starting, I think we started like the Tuesday or Wednesday by going to events in um, Milan. Was it in Milan? Yeah, I think it was in Milan where there were a lot of fans. So there was a huge amount of support. And then Saturday with the crazy qualifying there was, we just started on Poland Sunday. And you can just feel how much it means to Italy whenever you have an opportunity to win 
at Monza with Ferrari. How did you get in and out of the track at Monza? Because you have to go through the fans to get to the paddock. <laughs> How do you negotiate that as a Ferrari driver? I'm always trying to stop as much as I can. I thought they might put a bag over your head and just smuggle <laughs> you in, otherwise you'd never get there. No, not really, not really. No, no, no. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, there's a lot of support. There are a lot of people, but I was trying to stop. I mean, it was taking quite a bit of time to get out of the track. But yeah, it's just such a nice feeling to be arriving at the track and to have so much support. It feels incredible. And that's why it makes it so, so, so special to be a Ferrari driver. And that podium as well. Pfft. Yeah. It's mental, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I've still got images. I think these are images that will remain with me for, for the rest of my life. These moments that you can remember, you know, every single details of it. Outside the car, Charles is a man of many talents. Among many other things, he plays the piano in order to relax and to take his mind off racing. I was playing very little when I was younger, but I've always enjoyed it, but never took any lessons or whatsoever. It was just to relax and that's it. And then with the first lockdown, I started again to get on the piano and became obsessed with it. Then bought more serious piano and got into lessons. I did probably three or four months of lessons. Once I knew how to read the music, basically I kind of stopped, even though I want to re restart now, but just with the season, there are too many things to do that I cannot really have the time to, to take lessons, but I want to, to uh, take them back. But yeah, overall, I'm just, any, every time I've got like 10, 15 minutes free at home, getting on the piano and, and try to relax. What is it about the piano? I don't know, just music. It makes me, makes me relax. Otherwise, I just can't stop thinking about racing. So I'm, I'm just uh, putting myself on the piano and, and think about everything else apart from racing. The piano you can hear in that clip is Charles. He's great, isn't he? Let's hope that Ferrari comes up with a 2022 car to match his driving skills. Grand Prix can be won and lost by the finest of margins, which is why I love chatting to Alfa Romeo's chief strategist, Ruth Buscombe. She was fascinating about the goings-on on the pit wall and the rivalries that exist in the pit lane. I guess it's a little bit like, you know, in most things, whether it's media or, or being a team principal or a driver or a strategist, kind of you'll know each other's worlds better than, than anybody else. And certainly, you know, if you've had a very good day or a very bad day, maybe they're the only ones else in the world that actually truly understand that. I mean, Randy, who's a great guy, one of my good friends last week tweeted something beautiful after his uh, race win about the fact that he was contacted by every single team in the paddock. And that's Randy at McLaren. Randy C. McLaren. And that's what makes a great sport. I was raised to, you know, shake the opposition's hand and say good game when, when they've done a better job than you and when you've been outraged. And I think that's the element of sport and that's what it should be. I mean, now it'd be a fist pump or an air pump, but <laughs> <laughs> same premise applies. Can we talk about some of the strategies that you're particularly proud of? First one I want to ask you about is Malaysia 2015. Sebastian Vettel's first win for Ferrari. Sebastian Vettel swerving, weaving, dancing to the chequered flag. He wins as a Ferrari driver for the first time in Formula One. 
grazie mille ragazzi, grazie, 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 dai, forza Ferrari! Can you just talk us through how that came about and what it meant to you after the race? So this uh, was a kind of a transition of, of heads of strategy at Ferrari. So we'd, we'd lost one head of strategy and then there was a new head of strategy that was arriving for race three. So it was a, a kind of a transitional period where all the kind of B team were effectively left holding the strategy baby for a couple of races until the, the new head of strategy was going there. So there was a lot of hunger. And Ruth, how long had you been in Formula One at this point? So this was my fourth season in, in Formula One. I'd started at the 2012 season, but I was still factory based. So I was working in the factory and, and there was a just a brilliant group of engineers that were working in the, in Marinello in the factory at that point. And it was a, a brief moment where actually there was a lot more responsibility that fell on, on people that had a lot of passion, were very smart and dedicated and, and maybe necessarily didn't quite get that opportunity to shine. And I think that's what made that day very special was that we were able to work together to come up with a strategy, even after some pretty intense quizzing by Aravabeni, who's still the scariest man I've ever, ever had say. a conversation with. <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> it's like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. And I remember turning around to the guys in the room and being like, don't worry, guys, there's never been been like an early safety car in Malaysia but we just need to pretend we need to be confident okay we've done the work we know the numbers there's not going to be a safety car anyway we've got to hold face guys and then um even Seb questioned it he was like are you sure and I was like yes I am like deep voice I'm very sure and we were sure with the numbers but you know it's still intimidating to be questioned and then of course the safety car came out and I was kind of immediately my first thought was oh god like no, I've like manifested this this safety car into being by saying there's not going to be a safety car we're really confident in our numbers we definitely know what we need to do then we did it and uh, and we stayed out and we did a two-stop and we were right and it was a, was a two-stop. And um, we, on that day, beat the mighty Mercedes, which was a huge feat. And, and we knew from that day it would not be a winless season, which in, in Marinello is a big, important thing. And I think that day when we came back, and they normally do a celebration lunch in Ferrari after a race win, uh, was the first day I felt truly like I was in F1, despite having been in there for four years, because... Being a British woman in, in Ferrari, maybe you don't always feel 100% like you really belong there. And on that day, I truly felt like I belonged. Malaysia 2015 was certainly a magical win, Ruth. And to hear so much joy in Seb's voice was wonderful. From one great car brand to another. While it wasn't a great season for Aston Martin on track, it was still fantastic to see them back in Formula One for the first time in 60 years. So who better to have on the show than Lawrence Stroll, the big boss? He's a man who doesn't usually give interviews, so it was a pleasure to speak to him and to hear about his plans for the team. I think it's fair to say everyone recognises in the paddock that we're the next big thing to happen in Formula One. There definitely is that vibe. Actually, Sebastian himself told me that two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, when we were just sitting actually having lunch outside here in the hospitality he says you know it's just the vibe everywhere everyone's just talking that they all believe that we will be the next you've talked about the five-year plan to win the world title how's it going are you on schedule we are very much so i mean you know the, as i said there's there, there's several pieces to, to that plan 
one is is recruiting the best people. Second is giving them the best tools and processes to be able to fight for world championship. And our case tools and processes is the brand new Aston Martin campus we're building, which is about 400,000 square feet. It'll nothing ever built like it before in Formula One. It'll be the state-of-the-art Formula One facility with a, uh, I don't know if we call it a campus because it'll be over three buildings. The main building, which will have all the DO and the manufacturing R&D, and then there'll be a, a new brand new wind tunnel, first new wind tunnel since I think it's 2004 in Formula One, and then we'll have a building in the center, which will be for wellness and restaurants. We're going to have a, a, a nursery to take care of people's children. So it's really tools that would be needed to be fighting for world championships. Have you enjoyed that process? Was it a blank sheet of paper? Right, lads, what do we need? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's a process that we started uh, before COVID. We, we hoped the building would already be finished today. Um, we had to put it on hold for close to two years because of COVID. But it's, it's been a team process. It's everybody involved in the team of, you know, in their departments, department heads of what they needed in terms of premises and people in order to be fighting for the top. So it's been a fantastic experience. And it's, as I say, it's over two years now, basically on pause. Obviously, we've been working to, to, to improve it over those two years. But um, it is, it's very exciting to see. We've, we've started now building in Silverstone. So very exciting. How does it differ to other factories you've been in? Obviously, there's Williams, but you've been involved with other teams as a sponsor as well. Is, has there been anything like this before in Formula One? No, there'll, there'll be nothing at all like this. This will have our DNA, our culture, and it'll be, you know, fit for purpose. Can't wait for it to be finished. So the five-year plan, we're on schedule, the factory's being built. Does Aston Martin have to win the world title to be regarded as success, the Formula One program to be regarded as a success? No, it doesn't have to win a world title. It has to be fighting and contending for world championships. Um, winning would be the icing on the cake, but it has to have the ability every weekend to be able to win. Such as the vagaries of sport, really, isn't it? You yeah, well, it's, listen, it's, it's like every business I've ever run in my life. I, I obviously I have a, a, a great track record of winning at everything I've done. There's nothing closer to my heart that I'm more passionate about than this business. And for me, winning here doesn't necessarily mean winning the world champion, but means have a winning team that's capable each weekend of winning the race. The ambition of that man to hear him listing what there is to come for the team is quite extraordinary. And you sense that there have to be exciting times ahead for Aston Martin. Who doesn't love a shoey? The way Daniel Ricciardo's smile and shoes lit up the podium at Monza was something many fans will never forget. So it was great to have the Aussie back on the show to talk about that win and watching his hero, Ayrton Senna. Daniel Ricciardo on course for his first victory since Redemption. Monaco 2018. He left Red Bull, he went to Renault. Holy back at cheese balls, that's another podium. He's gone to McLaren, he's going to get the victory now. It's McLaren and Ricciardo that win the Italian Grand Prix. Oh! 
for anyone who thought I left. I never left. Let's talk Monza then. Are you still somewhere in your mind on a high? Parts of me, yeah. And I'm choosing to be. I am because it's, you know, not, not to a point where I'm walking around with my, with my chest puffed out. It's, it's not that. But I'm, I'm just choosing to still appreciate it, I guess, and enjoy it. It had been so long and, yeah, but that high as well, the, the feeling of Monza and how many, I, I literally still haven't replied to all the messages. You know, it was, it was insane how many people reached out and uh, that's just a nice feeling to have. So I, I, I feel bad just letting it go like that. Were the emotions on the podium there comparable to, to Monaco in 2018? Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the only thing that it, let's say, lacked was the atmosphere. You know, there was uh, not a full crowd and, and all of that. So may, maybe that was the only difference. But everything else, the emotions, the, the feeling, the relief, the happiness, uh, all of it the people around me the team the, the the paddock i was getting pats on the back from people from every different team and from the media it was it was just really nice what was your reaction to the reaction were you quite humbled by it yeah yeah i i think it's you know it does make me proud like i'm, I'm not going to deny that and I, I will speak um well, just try to be honest about it and open, but it does make me proud and it, it kind of shows me that I'm I'm doing or I've done something right in the sport, you know, where, because if I win, you know, no one should care more than me about winning, if you know what I mean. But I felt like so many people cared as much as I did and so many people were as happy as I was. So that's, yeah, as you say, humbling, but it does make me proud because I'm like, okay, I've obviously gone about this in a, in a good way to have this effect on people. So it's nice and I think it's it's definitely genuine and I think that's probably what makes me proud is that I have feel I've always been in this sport as me. I don't think it's changed me too much over the years. That sort of stuff is really, really cool. And your trophy for that win now sits alongside Senna's at the MTC, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and you were at Adelaide in 1993 as a... A wee bound, yeah. but, but you were there, weren't you? Senna's last victory in Formula One. Does that feel a bit, do you even get emotional seeing that association? I did, absolutely. When I, uh, like, I mean, the emotion was that I didn't really have words. You know, I was, I was speaking very slow and deliberate because it was, it was emotional. Because as long as I've been doing this, it still feels like, the click of a finger, you know, I can take myself back to being a kid and putting F1 in this dream world. Senna has given us a magnificent demonstration of how to go motor racing today. To win the last Grand Prix of 1993, a magnificent achievement for him, for McLaren and for Ford, and Ayrton Senna wins in Australia to the delight of his fans. To be there and to see Senna, and I think just to see the trophy, and to kind of have these visualizations I guess of him picking up that exact trophy on that day and now for me to have a trophy that I picked up on on the top step next to it 
I was just trying to draw these like I don't know parallels or whatever you call it and I was just it's like how how did I how did I end up here so I still do pinch myself which I like I like that because it does make me appreciate it Do you actually remember Adelaide 93? Because you were four. Yeah. Do, so, do, you, do you really remember it? Well, I, I do. So there's there's a photo of me and dad on, on the, the pit wall on like the start finish straight after all the podium uh, ceremony. And I do have like one photographic memory of sitting on the, basically sitting on the track and, and looking up at like the pit buildings. So I'm able to picture that now. And that's that's what I have. I, for one, never thought you left, Daniel. And the vibe in the paddock after that win at Monza was truly awesome. Now, away from the track, Daniel remains as interesting as ever. Just take his love of live music. Let's say on the, call it tougher days or harder days, there is certain things you miss, whether it's family, whether it's a bit of a social life. And that's that's something where music's always given me this, I guess, like beautiful escape. If I feel good, it'll make me feel better. And if I don't feel that good, it'll make me feel better. And I just, I don't know, it's weird because I I didn't grow up playing instruments. I don't have any music background, but I know that I have like a connection with music because it changes the way I feel. And it's, I love watching someone, yeah, just, just perform and... Can you sing? No. I mean, I try, but I mean, I try as in, you know, I'm a shower singer and... If I'm in the car by myself, I'll sing, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I sing. I, I, <laughs> I make noises, <laughs> uh, but also, you know, you'll, you'll look around, say the venue and everyone is engaged in the performance, you know? So it's, uh, everyone's there with a kind of level of calmness and happiness. And it's even that itself, like the crowd itself makes the, the experience quite nice. It's great to know that I have something in common with Daniel Ricardo. I'm a shower singer. And I loved what he had to say about the power of crowds. And it reminded me just how brilliant it was to have some spectators back at some Formula One races this year. After five years at Mercedes, Valtteri Bottas is moving on next year to Alfa Romeo. So we asked him on the show to reflect on his time with the Silver Arrows. I'm proud and now definitely knowing that you know I'm continuing to another another team I've had time to a little bit reflect every now and then of the situation because you know we've achieved some pretty pretty special things together now four times hopefully fifth in a row as a constructor champion and you do need good drive, uh, two two drivers for for that um and also you know if you look at me and Lewis as teammates if you look at the history of Formula 1 the amount of points we wins podiums we've got together for me it's hard to try and name a better better team uh, so uh, I'm, I'm definitely proud and the main thing is that i know that i've given everything like um, i can look in the mirror and say that i tried i gave it everything i had that's all i can do does it eat away at you that you haven't won the world championship for sure yes because that's ultimately since since a kid it's the your goal, your, your dream. And it has been always really, really strong in my mind as a, as a goal. And it's, it's been a force that has kept me working hard. It's like every day, whatever I do for this sport, 
it's because of that. I want to be the best. I want to be the champion. So yeah, in in a way, that kind of feels as a failure that I haven't been able to achieve that with Mercedes. But as I said earlier, on the other hand, I've tried everything I could have. You know, I've done, given everything. Uh, so it just wasn't meant to be, at least for now. I love Valtteri's straightforward honesty both in what he says and his general attitude towards Formula One. Perhaps, as he says, the title wasn't meant to be this time around. But let's see what the future holds. Away from the track, Valtteri's love of coffee made me smile. Let's just say his caffeine intake has gone up a notch or two. Now, look, what about this passion for coffee, right? Is it something you just do for Instagram or is it a genuine passion? Is it, can we call it an addiction? Yeah, it is addiction and, and passion, and especially good coffee. You know, people drink so much coffee in the world. <laughs> I've just got to interrupt you, right? So obviously people can't see your face right now, but you've suddenly put your serious face on. We're talking about coffee here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's an important thing. And I, I want to encourage people to drink more good coffee and from good sources, because there's massive differences on like a bulk uh, type of, of coffee, you know, where it comes from, how it comes from, how much actually the coffee farmers get out of it, etc. So I'm one of the owners of one roastery, coffee roastery in Finland, and we work really directly with the farmers and trying to minimize any middleman taking cuts and so on. And it's great quality coffee and it's roasted with, with passion. Um, and yeah, for me, it's an important thing. Now, what does your trainer, Antti, make of this coffee? Because from a purely from a professional sportsman point of view does it have side effects negative side effects because obviously it gives you that boost but also i guess it has the opposite effect as well if you have too much coffee yes it can have negative side effects you know in endurance sports it can lead to stomach camp cramps it can lead to nervousness uh, high heart rate but if you can optimize the caffeine intake there actually is benefits proven in endurance sports and also in terms of your, your focus so I always try to find that optimal peak of the caffeine boost before the race start. What, so a quick espresso before you go to the grid? For me, what works um, well is yeah between 100 and 120 milligrams of caffeine uh, before a race, let's say 45 minutes before. That's like the, the optimal. And I love this story you told me the other day of you being a judge at the Finnish coffee championships. How many shots of coffee was it? Did you say 27 I think shots? it could have been 27, yes. Yeah, and the other judges obviously spat it out, but you yeah. chose not I did to. it. Yeah, I didn't. It's same like if I go for wine tasting, I don't spit it out. Same with coffee. So, uh, But that was too much. Uh, that was too much coffee. But uh, an interesting thing because, you know, obviously you teach your palate to, to learn about differences in, in coffee and you just start to pick up more and more things uh, the more you try different things. Right, last question on coffee. When you're tasting a really good coffee... Just describe it on the palate. What does it taste of? The beauty of coffee, every coffee um, bean or brand and how it's roasted, it is different. But um, if I would describe my favorite type of coffee, it's almost like a tiny bit fruity, really smooth, low in acidity, maybe hint of caramel and milk chocolate. The stars kept on coming this year and it was a real pleasure to speak to Fernando Alonso in Qatar. I caught up with him on the eve of the race, and he was extremely relaxed and forthcoming, even if we were all struggling with jet lag after a 15-hour flight from Sao Paulo. That's one of the things that did change in, in my career. When I was younger, 
uh, I could sleep in in any country in any any time. Jet lag was not not a problem, and now it's not a big thing. But I, I feel that I I need more days to get used to the to a new time zone. And how does that affect your performance in the car? Not much. I have to say that uh, when you are in the car, there are no limitations on on the physical aspect or um, you know it seems like your body is is switching on and the adrenaline is so high the focus is so high that you you tend to forget whatever problem you have in that moment physically or mentally you know you completely uh, get uh, absorbed by, by by the car so even mentally that's the case as well yeah because i felt that sometimes i get some some worries on my head or i have some maybe personal issues or other things that are happening in in the previous days or even that day and then you you close the visor you leave the pit lane and and for that period of time you completely forget about anything that uh, happened un- until that moment we've just come off the back of a titanic world title fight between lewis and max and fernando is a driver who knows just how well you need to perform in order to beat Lewis, something he learned when they were teammates at McLaren. I think with Lewis, we didn't have, let's say, the the competition that I was looking for. It's true that in 2007, we we shared the team, and that's for for the general people, you know, the the biggest fight you, you could have. But in 2007, I think we both were not ready. Understandably, he was not maybe ready for the fight because he was a rookie and coming into Formula One and I was you know not not performing at my best not really integrated with the team and for sure we had all the fights together and all the stress together to fight for the championship and we were not well managed at that time and and all the 2007 uh, thing that uh, Okay, we we finished with the same points in the championship, which you could see as a as a very big fight and even fight. But uh, I think we both could have done better. And then in the in the following years, I had a better package, I think, in Ferrari than him when he was in McLaren. So we didn't fought really directly. And now when he switched to Mercedes. He had a, a better package and we never had the opportunity again to fight together. So that's, that's a, a missing point in, in my career. But obviously, he, he, he's a legend of the sport. And, uh, and uh, he, again, like Michael, you know, push you to the limit, you know, because if you want to beat Luis, uh, you need to perform at your best. Compliments don't come much bigger than what Fernando just said about Luis. And it shows just how good Max must have been this year. And it was also interesting to hear Fernando speak so frankly about what winning another world championship would mean to him. It will mean a lot, for sure. Uh, But I don't know. It's not that, you know, I'm desperate to to get it and uh, that will will change, you know, my, my whole career or it will change my my way of, of seeing the sport you know I'm, I'm, I'm a competitive person as we, as we touched before you know everything <laughs> I, know. I do so I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to the third championship and I will do you know what is in, in my hands and even more you know in, in the next coming years but uh, you know it, it will mean a lot in, in terms of maybe a, a legacy 
after my career uh, finished in Formula One of how to, uh, you know, always push to the limit, uh, always try to find the excellence on, on the things you do, uh, having a very high discipline in, in the way you do races, in the way you approach racing. Uh, it doesn't matter if you are 19 or if it doesn't matter if you are 42 or 43, you know, it's, it's a, a way of living and a, a full dedication to, to the sport. Uh, that probably is the biggest thing if, if I win the third championship, you know, that, that kind of legacy and message for, for future generations. I'm sensing that if the 22 car is good, you're going to be here beyond 22. Ah, yes, I, I will be. And even if the car is uh, <laughs> not it. so good, but uh, yeah, my, my plan is, is to stay yeah, at, least, at least two or three years more. Talking of world champion drivers, my next clip is from my conversation with Paddy Lowe. Paddy is a technical genius, but he's also worked with some of the best drivers of the modern era. What makes them so good? For me, it's sort of great privilege that, that I've been able to work with that terrific range of world champions and, you know, enjoyed every minute of it. And particularly, you know, to, to enjoy the differences between them all. You know, they're all unique characters, both in terms of their driving and their race craft, but also as human beings. So then I'm not answering your question yet. <laughs> um, honestly, I can't sort of pull out and say, you know, the best or clearly Lewis is an incredible force to be reckoned with in that, you know, for all that he achieved. And particularly, you know, for me, like I mentioned, that the first season, the first nine podiums is actually one of the greatest things I've ever seen firsthand in terms of race driving. But, you know, Nigel, where do you start with Nigel? I actually would say the most exciting driver I ever worked with and the most in many ways, the most rewarding for the engineer, because actually when Nigel put a car around a lap, you absolutely knew he'd wrung its neck. There was nothing left because Nigel's commitment was a thousand percent. You know, he put his whole body and mind literally into that lap. And, um, you know, that, that was incredible to behold. And I worked with people who weren't great fans of Nigel, and uh, even they, you know, you could see they were like, okay, I've got to hand it to him. You know, that was incredible. You know, Mika was a great driver to work with, really good fun, you know, so fast mm. and so uh, lateral thinking in his approach. That's interesting. What do you mean by a lateral thinker in a driving sense? Mika had no fear of a car. So, you know, anything you want to try, he's going to give it a go because you know, he was a master of the car. There was not, nothing was going to be too difficult. You know, we sat and brainstormed one day while waiting for an engine change, as you had to do back then, and came up with the idea of a hand throttle because he said, oh, you know, hand's much nearer my head than my foot. It's got to be better. And we actually built it and tried it. It didn't work for various reasons. But, you know, he's one of the few drivers that would have given that a go. I love that story about Hakkinen wanting a hand throttle. Seems mad, really, but it says a lot about Mika that he wanted to try it. On the technical front, Paddy's seen a lot. He was the brains behind one of the most audacious technical innovations ever, last seen in the early 1990s. For those people listening who don't know or don't understand active suspension, can you just explain how it worked, that version, those early versions of it? 
Yeah, there are there are many many types of active suspension, but essentially, you know, a passive suspension, which is what most road cars have, and and modern day Formula One, is something where no energy is added to the suspension from anywhere except you know from road disturbance. Um, so you know you have dampers and springs, but they're all uh, reacting or even dissipating energy that's come from the road. Whereas an active, you're applying energy, and in this case, it comes via hydraulics so you have a hydraulic pump which is supplying that hydraulic energy in this case it was two actuators on on each corner and there are two roles of a suspension on a racing car one is to absorb the the variation in in track surface so the bumps in the road in effect the the other is to maintain a ride height or a ground clearance or an attitude for aerodynamic reasons actually on a racing car that that second is by far the most important so the main delivery of the williams active suspension was that we could maintain an attitude of the car much like an aeroplane that we we wanted at all times rather than one that was simply a function of the passive deflection of a passive suspension in response to aerodynamic load what gave you more lap time traction control or active suspension. That was the funny thing, actually, because we'd spent, you know, all together, including the early work by by Frank, maybe eight years on the active suspension. You know, complicated system, expensive, um, and that was worth about a second a lap. And then at the last minute, you know, late '91, as we were getting ready to race the active for '92, we introduced traction control, and first ran that with Damon Hill. At, at a Ricard test, winter 91. And he actually came in, again, no simulator. We had no idea what this thing was going to do. You just, in principle, thought you know, there was no rig to test it. We just came up with an algorithm, put it on there, sent him out. And he came in and said, no, nah, I don't like this. It's holding me back, he said. I can feel it holding me back because it's cutting cylinders on the exit. And we said, yeah, well, that's all very well, but you are a second a lap quicker. <laughs> and then what did Damon say? <laughs> I can't remember what he said at that point, but, you know, that was it. Then we were racing it. Lap time is king in Formula One. Traction control, active suspension. Formula One is a breeding ground for innovation. And judging by the feedback we get from you guys, you really enjoy hearing from the engineers in the sport. Those technical innovations that Paddy was talking about first appeared at Williams. So let's stay with the team now and wind the clock back to the late 90s when Jacques Villeneuve made the switch from IndyCar to Formula One. He joined the Grove outfit as Damon Hill's teammate in 1996 and won the world title the following season. His race engineer was Jock Clear and he remembers it all like it was yesterday. I sort of liked the fact that he was a bit of a rebel. You've got to look at this in the context of driving for Williams. Williams was, and still is, a fantastic team, a fantastic team. A team in the real sense of the word team. You know, everything about working at Williams was just about Frank and Patrick and a really, really healthy dynamic with all of, all of the people in the team, with the drivers. And a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, but, but Williams never treated their drivers well. I don't think you'll find a driver that would ever have much complaint about how they enjoyed their time at Williams. They'll they'll find occasions where they'll say, oh, yeah, Frank said this or Patrick used to do this or you had no respect for me. Or, 
But actually, you, if you said to them, okay, so did you enjoy your time at Williams? Absolutely. They thoroughly enjoyed their time at Williams. So this was a really great team dynamic, but it was all about Frank and Patrick. And actually, to the extent that the drivers, you know, were really quite sort of oppressed at, at times, you know, and, and obviously I wasn't there when, when Prost was there and maybe it was very different with a, a driver of his caliber, but certainly I was there with Damon and he struggled to get his voice heard at times. So actually Jacques arriving as this young kid with no real track record, apart from having won Indy, of course, which is quite a track record, but in Europe it counts for nothing. You know, Patrick had very little respect for the fact that he'd won Indy 500 and the Indy car championship. And so the fact that Jack was willing straight away to defend his corner and put up a fight if he didn't agree with what was going on. And, and you know, I don't, I don't mean in, in areas that he shouldn't be involved, you know, just in what he needed when he was driving the car. This is how it is. I, I need this or I could do with that. He wouldn't be told otherwise. Did he have a quirky driving style? Oh, God, yes. I've sort of, sort oh, of, everything, yeah. everything, <laughs> everything was quirky about, I mean, any other driver gets in his car, they're not going to be able to drive it. It had a stupidly short throttle pedal throw. So most drivers nowadays have about 50 millimetres, 70 millimetres of throttle travel. So that's at the ball of your foot. You're travelling 50 millimetres, 70 millimetres to have the, the modulation. The shortest I've no, known anybody else is about 45. Jacques had 22. Now, 22 millimetres is nothing anything longer than that and he was like no this throttle pedal's far too long i can't drive that patrick would be like what on earth is this idiot doing you yeah does he have any understanding about how a bloody racing car works but he wouldn't be told you know i don't care what patrick says i want you know that is why? too long why did he want such a, a short travel? who knows it's one of those things like people often talk about driver's seats and how specific they are. And again, that was, I mean, his seat, his steering wheel, I used to have to hand build his steering wheels. And again, Patrick used to go mental. Patrick would come up into the back of the garage and I'd be there doing another steering wheel with a load of tape and blue tack, making it the shape Jack wanted. Because back then they didn't have molded grips. They all have molded grips now that suit their hand, but they didn't then. They just had a normal rim, just like you did in your road car when it was just a bit smaller. And of course, Jack said, if if I can grip it properly, then actually I have more control, which is quite logical, which is why all drivers now have have molded grips. But back then nobody did, and it was good enough for Alan Jones. So why does bloody Villeneuve have to have molded grips? Well, I said, if the kid says he'll go quicker with molded grips, I'm going to give him molded grips. So I did them by hand. And of course, if Patrick, everybody like Patrick, come in, quick, put it under the bench. <laughs> all right, Patrick. Yeah. But if he caught me doing another talk how many times have i told you leave those bloody steering wheels alone wasting our bloody time <laughs> but it was great you know that yeah. was what was williams was all about and don't get me wrong patrick loved having jack there he'll tell you now that jack was not a very good racing driver and actually bloody nearly threw away a championship with a very good car but he doesn't really mean that he enjoyed that dynamic for sure because he likes shouting at people and jack gave him lots to shout about Jacques was such a quirky driver, wasn't he? I mean, just imagine feeding 700 brake horsepower through throttle travel of just 22 millimetres. Just extraordinary. And we'll end this show with Patrick Head, the technical genius behind Williams when they were in their pomp. I spoke to Patrick before Sir Frank sadly passed away last month, but we still spoke at length about his former business partner. Between you and I, nobody else knowing at all, he really did not know much about the engineering of Formula One. But he was clever enough to know that, and he treated it as a bit of a joke. 
I could see all the problems ahead in any time. And I'm not saying for one moment I was a depressive. I was never a depressive. But Frank, he was like that puppet on television, Tigger. It didn't matter what was failing, what was happening. Frank could put his head on the pillow at 10 o'clock at night and boom, he was out. And wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning, fully refreshed, and come to work saying, OK, chap, let's go for it, you know. He was always totally positive, whereas I could foresee problems that Frank just wasn't even aware of uh, and didn't even look for. So we made a good mix between the two of us. And if ever I sat down in Frank's office and said, oh, Frank, you know, this problem, that problem, Frank would say, don't worry, chap, we'll sort it out. You know, he wouldn't necessarily tell me how to do it, but he was always very positive and that was very good for me. Did you agree on most things or would you have a stand-up row if you disagreed or, or how would disagreements overcome? Sometimes we'd have the good manners to talk things through. If Frank, I thought, was taking a direction which I thought was completely and utterly wrong, then uh, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a complete pussycat now, uh, Tom, but I'm told in those days I had a reputation of being fairly aggressive. And if I thought Frank was completely barking up the wrong tree, then I think I'd tell him so. I might have used the word no. What about the dynamic between you and Frank after his car crash? How did that change? It certainly changed. Frank, as is well known, I mean, I think he's the oldest quadriplegic by decades. And the positive attitude that I spoke about before, he applied to his, his life. He was always very keen to compete. Before his accident, he was, you know, he was, as I said, he was like Tigger. He was, I mean, very annoying at times. <laughs> Bounding with energy and going off for 20-mile runs all the time. And uh, Is it true that he went for a run every day? Every day, yeah. Did you ever join him? Uh, no, no, I was never, <laughs> ever. In fact, there was a picture that had been seen of, must have been sort of the early days with Alan Jones, 1979 or something, 78 maybe it was, with Frank and Alan both in tracksuits running off from our first factory. Well, I think as soon as the photographer had that picture, Alan turned around and walked back to the factory and came in for a cup of tea because <laughs> Alan was not a runner. And uh, uh, it was very much stayed. But Frank would have gone on and done 10 miles. He did 10 miles every day and uh, was very fit. And I think when they had that running race around Silverstone with and a lot of the people in Formula One were runners and Frank won it by miles. You know, he was, uh, he was a serious runner. Some lovely words from Patrick there. And I love the thought of Frank being like Tigger. Rest in peace, Frank. And that wasn't the only bit of gold from Patrick. What he said about Imola 94 and how Damon Hill helped lead the team thereafter was also incredibly powerful. After the accident on Sunday... The car was impounded down at Imola, Ayrton's car, damaged car, and Damon's car got back on the Monday. I think the Monday was a bank holiday in England. The senior engineers all came in. We had the data from the data recording on board the car, Ayrton's car. 
Damon came in and Damon was very involved in the analysis of the data because obviously for Damon, he wanted to know what had caused the accident. I don't think he wanted to carry on looking at the data onward because ongoing, there was a lot of analysis of the data. But once Damon had convinced himself that it wasn't the car that failed, which he did satisfactorily to his own satisfaction, Damon led the team forward at Monaco. Two weeks later, we were a one-car team. Our test driver, David Coulthard, came into the team for the next race, Barcelona, after Monaco. And Damon was, uh, you've got to remember, he was up against a very, very capable Michael Schumacher who had won the first two or three races. And um, Damon was integral in leading the team mentally out of the car as well as in the car. So Damon's personality was very strong in terms of leading the team out of a very difficult time. And through the circumstances were very complicated with Michael being banned for a couple of races but it ended up with us going to the last race of the year with one point or something between the two of them. So it was a, it was a very, very stressful season, obviously with the highest stress of all being the fact that Ayrton had been killed in one of our cars. So it was not an easy year at all. But for me, Damon's leadership of the team and his achievements on the track in 94 stand above his 96 championship year. Obviously, history will put him down as the 96 champion, but his achievements in 1994 were stunning, absolutely stunning. I wonder how Damon feels on hearing that. To hear those clips again sends a shiver down my spine. Well, folks, that pretty much rounds out the show and season four of Beyond the Grid. A huge thank you to you for listening and to all our guests for their time. It's been fun. I've loved every minute of every conversation. It's almost time to clock off for Christmas. But before we go, I wanted to share with you some of the comments you sent in about Kimi Raikkonen after last week's show. We're all going to miss Kimi, aren't we? Kay Flubb had this to say. In this podcast, Kimmy talks more than during his entire career. What a gift. What a legend. It's funny, Kay. Kimmy had this reputation of being a man of few words. Yet when you got him going, he was always a good talker, even when he was starting out 20 years ago. Let's go next to this from Kimmy Uwu. This podcast was fantastic and the sport will undeniably miss Kimmy. It makes me proud to be Finnish and proud to be named after this legend. Thank you for this interview. I still remember watching so many of his amazing races. Brazil 2007 is just unforgettable. Truly the end of an era. Thank you, Kimmy. And thanks to you, Kimmy. Cool name, by the way. As you can imagine, we got scores of messages about the Kimmy show. He was a fan's favourite. But let's end with this from Nameless. I just hope Kimmy is remembered for his speed and racecraft rather than his meme-worthy moments. Sure, he's funny, but Kimmy is a pure racer. He was truly incredible. He was indeed Nameless, and thanks for getting in touch. 
And Kimmy, good luck once again for whatever comes next in your life. Well, folks, that's it for another year. Thanks again for all the support. I hope you've enjoyed the shows and enjoy the holidays. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom Studios. Until next year, keep it flat out. <laughs>